Well, turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this night. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we'll read the final paragraph of this second chapter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, begin at verse 12, and read until the end of the chapter. Let's hear now God's word. When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. For to the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Amen. And let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for the holy scriptures, for the aroma of Christ that we read about in this passage, and just the privilege of standing now to read and proclaim the scriptures, and for us as your people to hear them. And we are doing exactly what Paul speaks of here, spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. So may that be a beautiful scent to us tonight, and may we again see the Lord Jesus here in the scriptures, savor him, feed on you by faith, eat the bread of life and be satisfied, and walk with you. And we thank you for your many mercies, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In these opening chapters of 2 Corinthians, chapters 1 and 2, Paul spends a lot of time discussing his change in travel plans. Maybe you've noticed that week after week we seem to be looking at the same topic. He's reaching finally the end of his long explanation and defense. And in summary, it's the idea that although he initially intended to visit the Corinthians twice, painful interactions with them caused him to postpone his visit. And last week we saw that the Corinthians had actually addressed one of the situations that caused Paul pain. But they were still bothered by the fact that Paul postponed his visit. And this led some among them to question Paul's integrity and his authenticity as an apostle. And so Paul, therefore, sets pen to paper once again, the letter that we have before us, to explain why he changed his plans and to defend the integrity of his ministry. And throughout these opening chapters, Paul has gone back and forth between those two goals, defending the change in plans, defending the integrity of his ministry. And his strategy has gone back and forth between practical defenses... Hey, the time just wasn't right. I I didn't want to make things worse. And theological defenses. God is faithful, and we try to emulate that. He just weaves back and forth between these two emphases. And throughout all this, Paul has defended his integrity and his motives, and he's argued that the postponed visit was for their good. And so in the passage that we will consider today, Paul gives one more 
practical application, or, or I should say explanation, before launching into a longer discussion of what it means to have an authentic ministry. One naturally leads to another. Look at the specific instance I'm defending. Now let's just talk in general about what it means to have an authentic ministry. And in doing this, he'll transition us from the opening concern of the letter, why he changed his plans, to his longer defense of his authentic ministry, which goes all the way until chapter 7. So once again, our passage presents us tonight with changing plans and an authentic ministry. Now let's consider both of those topics. First, changing plans due to God's providence. At the end of his defense of why he changed his travel plans, Paul introduces finally this very practical reason why he did not come to Corinth. He tells us in verses 12 through 13, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Paul first wanted to find Titus. And in his search for Titus, God opened a door, provided some kind of opportunity for further ministry. Now, why is Titus so important? Well, Paul had dispatched Titus to visit the Corinthians and then return to Paul. And Paul was eager to hear news of his visit. Paul will, by the way, tell us later in 2 Corinthians that he did finally hear from Titus and exactly what Titus told him. But remember, Paul is making this strategic decision to let things settle with the Corinthians. Let all these letters kind of do their work. Let them adjust their relationship with him. And so when he hears from Titus, he'll get an idea of just how that is going. Let me get this update from Titus before I visit you. And and Paul, again, he may have indicated all of that in his severe letter. He may have given him a heads up that this visit may change if I don't hear from Titus. But he wants to hear from Titus, and and he knows that the seasons are changing when people can and can't sail. So there's just a little unrest here on exactly what he should do. So he has to make this decision once again. Of instead of sailing west to Corinth, he will head north to Troas. You can either go west right across the sea, or you can head north and go overland, which is going to take you longer. So he makes a decision that he will head north to Troas. And Troas is located in modern-day western Turkey. It's kind of a gateway city for all sorts of business, whether you're getting on the sea or going further under, over land. And so this is a really strategic ministry location. In fact, this is the same path Paul followed on his second missionary journey. You may remember he wanted to go into this place, God said no. Wanted to go into that place, God said no. And then finally he gets this vision of the man in Macedonia saying, come on over here and help us. And that's when the gospel went that direction and eventually made its way down to Corinth where the church was established. So Paul is going to follow a similar route and hope to encounter Troas. Now, if you read the narrative in Acts, here's what you'll find. Paul was driven out of Ephesus, which is one of the reasons he left that city, 
and headed north to Troas. Now, Paul doesn't give us that detail here in 2 Corinthians, but rather speaks much of just God giving opportunities or Paul heading in different directions for the sake of the gospel of Christ. We, we read that right there in verse 12. When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. Again, roughly it could just be for the sake of the gospel. So on the one hand, you've got Paul being run out of town. On the other hand, you have Paul saying, I went this direction for the sake of the gospel. And that's why I'm saying that it seems that Paul is viewing God's providence at work. Yes, there are troubling circumstances, but those circumstances will give an opportunity for the gospel. And though the Ephesian or the people in Ephesus may drive him out, he will head north for the sake of the gospel. And for that purpose, then, Paul makes the much longer trip north to Troas than if he had just gone to Corinth. Again, he judges that it would be wise to wait. And as he goes on to Troas, what does he find? But an opportunity to preach the gospel. He, he speaks of an open door from the Lord here. So again, he, he's attributing all of these opportunities and all of these circumstances to God's providence. And in God providing this opportunity, Paul sees that as an indication from God of what Paul should do. So you have Paul on the one hand making judgments, and you have God, on the other hand, working providentially. This, together, is how Paul is moved into further opportunities for gospel ministry. However, when he gets to Troas, he doesn't find Titus. And again, meeting Titus will give Paul an indication of how things are going with the Corinthians. Again, he'll eventually find him. But he hasn't found him yet, and so he feels this restlessness without getting news from Titus and finding out things are going on with the Corinthians. Paul is restless, and he knows it's too late in the season for Titus to travel across the sea. So Paul is hopeful that he will find him in one of these cities as he continues making his way over land. Which, by the way, I, I thought very interesting that in the ancient world there was still enough communication and travel networks where Paul could go moving from region to region and just hoping to run into this guy. I mean, you wouldn't go into a major metropolitan city, would you, and think, well, I just hope I run into my friend here. No, but Paul seems to think, okay, if I go this way, because it's too late in the season for Titus to sail, he'll probably be going this way, and through our networks and associates, uh, we can run into one another. Pretty sophisticated communication uh, for back in the day. If Paul lived in our day, it'd be very different. I texted a pastor friend the other day. I said, are you watching the basketball tournament? He says, no, I'm in Turkey, which is exactly where these events are taking place. And he starts sending me pictures of Turkey. Well, Paul could have found Titus quicker back then, but again, God's pro or if he lived now, but God's providence didn't quite work out that way. So all of those factors uh, come together to help Paul make his decision. I've been run out of Ephesus. I haven't found Titus. I want to visit the Corinthians, but I need to get news first. And now this is, there's this opportunity. Paul doesn't tell us what it is. He just says there's this opportunity for further gospel ministry. And so Paul takes it. And so this is how God's providence works with our circumstances to bring about God's will. And theologians define providence. You'll find this in our 
Westminster Shorter Catechism, as God preserving and governing all his creatures and their actions. Paul has this sense that God is in absolute control of all these circumstances. And so he can try to discern from the circumstances, or at least that's one piece of the puzzle, what he should do. And so if these circumstances are falling out this way, then Paul will discern within that opportunities for gospel ministry. It seems that he has this vision of God is up to something. God has this big purpose of saving people and spreading the gospel. And so if these circumstances fall out this way, this is the decision I will make, and this is the route I will take. Now, as I read these words this week, I I wondered, why didn't Paul just tell them this to begin with? I mean, why such a long explanation with so much theological explanation? Why not just say, hey, look, I really needed to find Titus, and then this golden opportunity came around. Why not just say that? Well, I think it's because sometimes the best reasons can seem like excuses if you know the person is unhappy with you. So Paul has to lay out the larger picture to reassure them of his love commitment and integrity before he can get down to brass tacks and say by the way here's some of the things that happened and this was why I wasn't able to visit and so that's what he has now done he's just laid everything out and he hopes the Corinthians will understand and accept his reasons for postponing his journey to them and when I think of ways that we can apply this, I, th- I think of ministers, you know, in ministry, or just us as Christians living life. You know, don't ever use ministry or Christianity as some kind of excuse or, or a shield for unreliability. And, and never use the faith or, again, ministry just to, you know, to sacrifice relationships because there's these better opportunities. Don't, don't do that. But at the same time, we can see from Paul that being in the body of Christ together and being in ministry together, it does require flexibility. Sometimes plans change. God does things. Opportunities arrive. And all the parties should always be willing uh, to try to give that flexibility to one another and discern what God is doing and trust that he is pursuing his plan, which is good for everyone. So changing plans due to God's providence. And then a second reason that Paul explores in this chapter is where he begins to speak of authentic ministry based on Christ's triumph. Now, chapter 2, verse 14, begins a new section of the letter. And one commentator describes the structure of the letter like this. After the salutation, the first two verses, And the prologue, verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1, after those opened the door to 2 Corinthians, and the apostle's defense of his changed itinerary moves the reader into the entrance hall, at chapter 2, verse 14, we step into the very heart of the letter's structure. So in other words, we've gotten to the front door, we've come into the foyer, and now it's time to enter the great room of the house of 2 Corinthians. And just like you sit down in the living room when you visit someone, we're going to sit in this section for a little while because this will continue until chapter 7, verse 4. And the focus of this large section right here at the heart of 2 Corinthians is on the nature of authentic Christian ministry. What does a real ministry look like? 
And this is building on what Paul has already said. He, he had to explain the recent events. He had to explain why he changed his plans. And that gives him an, an opportunity to speak to integrity and authenticity. Towards the end of the letter, he's going to take on these false apostles who have infiltrated the Corinthian church and are causing trouble. So this is his real base uh, from which to make that argument. If he's going to assault the false apostles, he's got to establish what a true apostle and an authentic apostle looks like. And if you just want to sketch for purposes of notes, or if you want to read ahead, these three themes in particular will emerge. A true apostle is characterized by submission to God, integrity before people, and is driven by the spirit-empowered message of reconciliation. And again, if you didn't get all those down, we're, we're going to come back to those over and over again. Submission to God, integrity before people, and driven by the Spirit's message. And Paul lays those out to say, this is a true ministry so that the Corinthians can get the profile in front of them and then make a good choice as to which apostle they will follow. So having discussed God's specific leading of Paul, from Ephesus to Troas to Macedonia, a very specific circumstance where, where God led Paul along. Now he broadens that to show how God always leads him in this mission. So verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, I'm not just wandering around the Mediterranean looking for things to do. I am being led by God for the sake of the gospel. And then as we've been seeing where Paul goes from specific to more broad theological, that's what he does in these final verses tonight. So let's look at this broadening out of what it means for God to lead Paul in ministry. Now, maybe you notice when I read verse 14 just now, there's a particular phrase there that God always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. That, by the way, is one of those places where in our English translations, we've got a long phrase that translates just one Greek word, lead us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Just one word that the English is trying to render there. It's an image taken from Roman life. And it communicates the idea of a parade, the triumphal procession that would happen when a Roman general would return triumphant from a battle. And, and some of the movies that have been made over the years and, and tried to uh, replicate these scenes kind of bring out a good sense of what's going on. These, these chariots coming down the road with the general in the lead and, and all these displays following him of the spoils of war, or the captives of war, and, and everybody cheering and rose petals at times uh, raining down. This was something that took place in Roman society. We, we can maybe, on a lesser note, compare it to a championship parade in an American city uh, whenever a major sports teams win a championship. But in the Roman world, you had these massive displays where the general would come down uh, the street and be followed, again, by uh, the spoils of war and the captives of war and other people following in his train. Paul uses this image to describe how ministry takes place. Now the question concerns how does Paul employ this image 
Is this a positive image or is this a negative image as it relates to Paul? And the dominant view, which is reflected here in the NIV, notice the translation, leads us as captives, it argues that Paul paints himself as a defeated captive, led along in chains and humiliation in the cause of Christ. It's Paul's way of saying, you know, the shame that I experience as an apostle or the mistreatment or the misunderstandings, well, you know what? That's all part of my service to Christ. So in order to serve him, I put up with what happens because I know that it is for your good. And you know what? That gets us to the main point we're trying to make. However, it is worth noting. Others have argued that the word does not necessarily communicate the idea of Paul being a captive. Rather, God is the one who triumphs in Christ. God in Christ is the conquering general, so to speak. And God in Christ through the gospel is leading the Paul or leading Paul and Paul's mission in a triumphal procession. So it's really just a question of asking, in the triumphal procession, which party is Paul? Is he one of the captives who's being brought home, captured by the general, perhaps soon to be executed? Or is he one of the victors with the general coming behind in the parade? We do know from Roman records that as the parade proclaimed the victory uh, of the general, so there would be people in the party that likewise came celebrating with him and showing what had taken place uh, in the battle. In fact, where is my note here? Uh, That sometimes the parade would include those who had been liberated, Roman citizens who had been set free due to the successful battle. So others argue that Paul is part of the uh, conquering party. He's sharing in the victory of the general, and so Paul's mission goes forward to proclaim the knowledge of the victorious Christ. It comes out differently in English translations, and at the end of the day, I think the main focus is on God is going forth triumphantly, and God, through the gospel, is going forward. Now, Paul then broadens out this image or continues to use uh, this language to describe the effects of his ministry. So pick up there at the end of verse 14. Uh, We're led in triumphal procession, and God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. So Paul says as the triumphal procession goes forward, there is this aroma or aroma being spread. And this scent, this fragrance is multidirectional. So on the one hand, Paul speaks of this pleasing fragrance that ascends up to God. And perhaps the imagery there uh, is pulling on the image of the priest ministering in the temple in the Old Covenant, the incense they burned that went up uh, to God, or or the sacrifices that were well-pleasing to him. And at the same time, Paul's ministry is an aroma that wafts over the people. So you have this parade imagery in mind, imagine this scent going out into the crowds. Now, what effect does this aroma have on people? To one group of people, 
the aroma is pleasing. It signals good things, life in particular. To another, it signals death. So imagine this parade scene. For those who had been captured by the general and were being displayed as prisoners of war, the aroma would signal a bleak future, perhaps even death. Death had brought them to this place, and death was their destination. For them, the aroma of the parade, it stinks. Everyone around them may be celebrating, but to them it stinks. And Paul compares such captives to those who are perishing, that is, to those who do not believe the gospel. So as God goes forth in the gospel, for some people, the gospel stinks to them because they are spiritually dead. And on the other hand, Paul refers to this aroma as the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. To others, this aroma really does signal triumph. And so not only do you have the celebrating Romans, but as I said a moment ago, Roman records also refer to liberated citizens taking place in the victory parade. In fact, in some parades, they are the centerpiece of the triumphal procession. These citizens got taken captive, and our general went and liberated them. So now that they are liberated and set free from their captivity, they march in honor of their Savior. And Paul uses this imagery to describe the nature and the effect of his authentic ministry. And this is, by the way, at the end, where where I think the image does tip to the positive. Uh, For Paul to say that I'm a captive places him amongst those who are dying. But then he goes on to say that those who are dying, for them the aroma stinks. And so I think his imagery gets mixed there and doesn't work. On the other hand, though, there are those for whom the, the aroma is pleasing and it signals victory. And I think that at the end of the day is the point that God, that Paul is trying to make. God has come. He has come in Christ. And he has triumphed over the forces of darkness. As we read last week in John 12, the prince of this world has been cast out. And now God in the gospel goes forward victoriously. And those who go with him are part of this triumphal procession. And Paul is like one of the incense bearers in the parade, spreading the aroma, that is, the knowledge of Christ to people wherever he goes, announcing that Jesus has triumphed and that Jesus is king and that this new world order and this new creation that he has introduced is good and people should flee from their idols in order to embrace this one true and living God. And there are many along the way who are embracing the gospel and being saved. The incense is to them a pleasing aroma. On the other hand, for those who respond negatively to the gospel, the aroma stinks, just like it would to the doomed captives in the parade. And the overall big idea then is authentic ministers are led by God in Christ, and they take the gospel wherever they go. And I think the application then that we can take away is just this. I I think of it on a ministry level and I think of it on on a personal level. On the ministry level, what message should you hear when you come to this church? You should hear the gospel. 
And by that, I don't mean the ABCs of salvation as the sole content of every message. If every time you came, every sermon was the Romans road, that would get redundant, and and believers would become spiritually impoverished. We, We are all to grow in our faith, moving from milk to meat. However, everything that is taught and proclaimed should be grounded in the gospel. It should emphasize what God has done in Christ, what he has done to save us, and how God is transforming us into Christ's image. And so a gospel-centered ministry will focus on the revelation of the gospel in the scriptures, the priority of God's saving action, and not concern itself with other topics. Gospel-centered ministry will strive to say what God says and not give human opinions. And gospel-centered ministry will be inclusive. That is, it provides a spiritually refreshing place for all of God's people, even if they don't agree with every particular of our confession. And, of course, authentic gospel ministry will have an effect on people. Some will reject it, but others will be drawn to its pleasing aroma. And so it's really just in the same application for our lives. As we go out, what what kind of aroma are we sharing and spreading? Is the gospel at the center of our message towards others? Is that what they're hearing and picking up from our words and from our actions? Even if it's not explicitly on the content, is our mannerism and our way of acting communicating this message of life that Christ has brought to us? Let's pray that God will do that work among us and among our church. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you again for Jesus Christ revealed in the good news that the triune God, the Father, sent the Son who has persevered in the faith, now pours out upon your church the Spirit. And we worship you and we grow in you and we seek to know you and love you and to do good to others and take the good news. So help us to do that. Thank you again for this consideration tonight of the gospel and the triumphal procession of Christ and our place in it. Help us to follow in his train and to spread this good news everywhere. And may many see and embrace uh, and taste and see that the Lord is good. So go with us now. Keep us safe during the week. Show us your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's sing in closing hymn 338. Spirit of God. Descend upon my heart. 338, and we'll sing verses 1, 3, and 5. Stand with me, please.